The scripture reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, the psalmist wrote, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. O oh, Father, how I love those words. How I rejoice in you that you caused David to write those words down because you are great beyond our imagination, Lord. Your greatness is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. It's incomprehensible. And how I pray this morning that you would exalt yourself in our eyes. Oh God, how we need for you to exalt yourself in our eyes. So many things in this life seem so big to us, and they are so small. And if we would just catch a vision of how massive you are, how great you are, how glorious you are, we would be freed from a thousand chains. So please help us, Lord. We're not here to play church this morning. We're here to commune with the living God. So please help us. Give us eyes to see you. Give us hearts that can receive you, Father. Give us ears to hear you as you speak to us. Let yourself be great, greater than anything else in our eyes this morning. And how we praise you for the way that the beginning of that psalm concluded, not only reveling in the greatness of the Lord, but reveling in the mercy of the Lord. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you have set your mercy on all that you have created. And oh, what great news that is, Father. If you were not merciful, we would be crushed. But you are merciful, and so this morning we have life, and we have hope in Jesus Christ, 
How we praise You for the mercy of Your heart. How we love to say You are God, mighty and merciful. Both. How we praise You. And Father, as we turn to Your Word this morning, I pray that You would show Yourself to be both things. You are going to lift up a standard before us this morning that is perfection. And it is, frankly, Father, in the flesh impossible for us to reach. And yet You are mighty and You call us to jump over that bar. But how we praise You that You are merciful to us in Christ. And every time we fall short, You cover our sins in Christ, if indeed we are in Christ. How we praise You that You are both mighty and merciful, able to cause us to leap and able to forgive us when we fail. Oh God, make these things real in our eyes this morning. Make these truths live in our lives this morning, I pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight this morning, Lord. Our rock and our Savior and our help. Amen. We are continuing this morning in our conversation about what it means to take off the old self and to put on the new self. In other words, we're continuing our conversation in what it means to leave behind our former manner of life before we were in Christ and to learn to live more and more day by day like who we really are now in Jesus Christ. Last week we dealt with, I think it was verses 25, 6, 7, and 8. And we talked about putting off lying and putting on truth-telling, about putting off the inappropriate use of anger and putting on the godly stewardship of our anger. And finally, we talked about putting off stealing and putting on hard work, about putting off the old self that reflected itself in greed and putting on the new self that displays itself in generosity. Freely you have received, now freely give, the Lord said. This morning, we're going to begin talking about putting off corrupt speech and putting on godly, uplifting, grace-giving, useful speech. And Lord willing, we'll finish this conversation next week. My plan is to deal with verses 29 and 30 today, and then deal with verses 31 and 32 next week. But before we get started, I want to take just a, a couple of minutes and remind us that the pursuit of practical holiness is not a form of legalism. The pursuit of practical holiness is not the fleshly effort to make ourselves commendable to God, as though anything we do could make us pleasing to God without Christ. Our sin has racked up an enormous debt with God. In fact, it's an infinite debt. It's a debt we could never, ever pay back again. We're like a person who makes ten bucks an hour and is trying to pay off a ten million dollar debt. I did some math this week and figured out that if, if you made ten bucks an hour and you work sixty hours a week, fifty-two weeks a year, never got sick, never missed work, never took vacations, and somehow you stretched and you're able to give a thousand dollars a month toward a ten million dollar debt, and if your lender graciously didn't charge you any interest at all, which would never happen, it would take you 833 years to pay that debt off. 833 years. Our debt is a lot worse than that with God. Our debt is infinite with God. And if we don't have someone who has infinite resources 
to come and on our behalf pay our debt. We're history. We're history. There's no way to relieve our debt. And praise be to God, that's exactly what He did for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus Christ was sent to this earth to live a perfectly righteous life and to die a heinous death and then to rise from the dead and ascend again to sit with His Father at the right hand of God where He rules and reigns right this moment so that an infinitely perfect being, Jesus Christ, might make an infinitely valuable sacrifice for infinite debt like ours. And all we have to do to make that infinite payment valid for our account is believe in Him. We simply believe in Him. Romans 10, what is it, 8-13, through 13, basically says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and believe in the most secret places of your hearts that God indeed raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. Your debt will be covered. You will be reconciled with God. Hallelujah. That's the only way that our debt can be paid. Once that debt has been paid in Jesus Christ, God not only forgives our sins, but He begins to transform us from the inside out. Romans 12.2, which we memorized this week, says, Don't be conformed to this world, but what? What's the other? Be transformed. In Greek, the word is metamorphoste. You can hear the word metamorphosis in there. God is metamorphosizing us. He's changing us from the inside out. He's actually giving us new affections, new passions that want to do what He has called us to do. So, when He calls us to pursue holiness, He is not calling us to earn favor with Him. We could never do that. He is calling us to live like who we are in Christ now. And by the power of Christ, friends, we have the power to overcome our flesh and to walk in holiness. Before, we couldn't do it. We had no power to do what God had called me to, us to do. But now, in Jesus Christ, we have infinite power at our hands to obey what the Father has told us to obey. This is why I said a few weeks ago that our pursuit of holiness is the display of our happiness in God. What our pursuit of holiness shows is that we are grateful for what God has done for us in Christ. And we are pleased with the plans He has for our lives. And He has captured our hearts, captured our minds more than this world has, more than the things of our flesh have. We are pleased with Him and we demonstrate that by seeking to obey Him by His power. Our pursuit of holiness, friends, is a longing deep in our hearts to not only be forgiven by this God, but to be like this God who has saved us. We not only want to receive grace, but we want to be gracious as He is. And so, that's the dynamic of holiness. As we think about these practical matters over the coming weeks, we started this conversation last week, and we'll probably be eight or ten weeks in real practical everyday matters. Do not let the devil trick you into any form of legalism or into any form of works righteousness where you're trying to do good things to please your Father. It doesn't work that way, friends. It doesn't work that way. Believe me, there is a world of difference between doing the things we ought to do because we're trying to earn our Father's love and doing the things we ought to do because we've already received our Father's love in Christ. 
I had a professor in college who was a very bright woman. She was a straight-A student from first grade all the way through her Ph.D. And she told us that every time she got a report card, she'd bring it to her dad, and she'd have straight A's. And her dad, every time for her whole life, said, You can do better. You can do better. You can do better. And so this woman spent her whole life trying to get her father's approval. She never got it. She never got it. Our God is not like that. And we're not in that kind of situation. We strive to do the best we can to get straight A's. Amen. When I get my report card, I want to hand it to Jesus with straight A's. But it's because I already have received His favor in Christ. I'm not trying to earn anything from Him. Believe me, when you pursue holiness like that, there is great joy in learning to obey your Father. We sang at Wednesday Night Church this week that song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Obedience is the path to happiness if you're not a legalist. If you're not a legalist. If you're free in Christ, obedience will make you very, very happy. So with that as a background, let's look now at verses 29 and 30 together. Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let me begin by defining a couple of terms, and then I want to talk with you for a few moments about the standard that God has set, the height of the standard that He has set, and what we're to do with that. This is an impossible standard. If you think about these verses carefully, God is commanding perfection from us with the way we speak. That's amazing. So I want to talk about that for a few minutes. But first, let me begin by defining a couple of things. The Greek word for corrupting literally refers to rotting fish or rotting fruit that is no longer useful for food. So it means that which is rotting. It's only used eight times in the New Testament, and it's variously translated as either bad or rotting or corrupting or what have you. The other day, Rachel and I were watching a television show about a guy who goes around the country and tries to help restaurant owners turn their businesses around. And in this one scene, he goes into the kitchen before anyone else got to the restaurant just so he could see what it was really like in the kitchen. And he's inspecting the place, and it's disgusting. There's just grease everywhere, grime everywhere. They probably haven't cleaned this kitchen in five or seven years, literally. It was just disgusting. But what put him over the top was when he found a container with this sort of spinach dip in it. And as he looked more carefully, he noticed there was mold growing inside the spinach. And as he sat there with disgust in his heart, he realized that they had served him the day before from this container. There was no other spinach dip anywhere in the restaurant. It had to have come from here. And later, in fact, the cook said, Yep, I did. I did. I served you out of that container. Is that disgusting or what? In another restaurant, he goes into the kitchen while they're serving everything just to see how they run their operation. And he notices a tomato sitting on a counter that's cut in half. And the tomato's not looking too good. So he goes and grabs the tomato and jabs it with his finger. And his finger just, just goes right inside the tomato. And as he pulls it out, you can imagine what was on his finger. A pile of black rot. And he's thinking about this, and he's thinking, what's this thing doing on the counter, half cut? And it hits him, they must have just served this to a customer. And just at that moment, the camera cuts, and you see the customer eating the other half of this tomato. 
Just disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Now, I share that with you not to gross you out, or even worse, to undermine your trust in the restaurant industry. But I share that with you because I think that's the picture Paul wants us to have in mind when he talks about corrupting speech. He's talking about rotten tomatoes and moldy spinach that comes out of our mouths and goes into the hearts of other people. He wants us to see that when that kind of stuff comes out of our mouths, it is hurtful to others. Just like corrupts uh, food, just like diseased food and moldy food, not only is it moldy in itself, but it tends to mold or corrupt or disease whatever it goes into, right? So when corrupty speech comes out of our mouths, it's not only corrupt in ourselves, but it corrupts those who hear it. It diseases those who hear it. It harms and wounds those who hear it. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to see in a very graphic sense. And so he says, let no corrupting, rotten, moldy speech come out of your mouth. None at all. Now what more precisely does Paul have in mind here? What's the dynamic in his heart? Why is it underneath his command that he's commanding us not to speak in this way? Well, I think the answer is pretty straightforward. Corrupt fruit comes from what? It comes from a corrupt tree, right? And corrupt speech comes out of a corrupt heart. If we have come to know Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ dwells in us, then our hearts are no longer corrupt, at least not in the way that they used to be. And since corrupt speech displays the corruptness of a heart, and good speech displays the goodness of a heart. And since Jesus Christ is in us, transforming our hearts, Paul is saying, talk like it's true. Let the speech that comes out of your mouth match the reality that lives inside of your hearts. You can either turn with me to this or just look up on the screen, but let's look at Matthew 12, starting in verse 33. Look what Jesus had to say about this. I'm about to use the words bad. He's going to talk about a tree that's bad and fruit that's bad. It's the same exact word as corrupting in Ephesians 4.29. So keep that in mind. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. In other words, the condition of the root of that thing is displayed by the fruit of that thing. You brood of vipers... How can you speak good when you are evil? How can you bear good fruit when you're, when the root of who you are is evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil. Now here's a couple scary verses. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Before Christ comes to dwell in our hearts, friends, we have one treasure in our hearts, and that treasure is evil. It's deeply corrupted. It's moldy. It's rotten. And so it's no wonder that everything that comes out of the mouth of a person who's not in Christ is also evil and corrupted. Even if their speech sounds good, in the sight of God, it's corrupt. Those people that Jesus just called brood of vipers, those were probably from the outside some of the most moral people that have ever lived on this planet. 
In one way, they were spotless. They were spotless, morally speaking anyways. But their hearts were evil. Their hearts were evil. So everything that seemed right coming out of their mouths in the sight of God was absolutely evil. And that's the only choice that they had. A, a bad tree cannot bear healthy fruit, right? But when Jesus Christ does come and dwell inside a person, as they put their faith in that person, then a, there is now another treasure inside the heart of that person. And that treasure is not something objective, as though it's a thing. That treasure is Jesus Christ Himself. And now we have two treasures in us. And what Paul is saying is, stop drawing out of the old treasure and speaking in a, a way that displays that that treasure is in your heart. And start speaking in a way that reflects that the treasure of Jesus Christ is in your heart. Do not draw out of the old, but draw out of the new. And as you learn more and more to draw out of the new treasure, guess what? The old treasure depletes and depletes and depletes and depletes until one day when we see Jesus Christ, it will be bankrupt. It will be completely empty and never again will a corrupting word come out of this mouth. Or if you're in Christ, never again will a corrupting word come out of your mouth. Now why did God make it this way? Why, why did God not just make it so that when Christ comes into our hearts, it just eradicates the old treasure? Wouldn't it be really nice to no longer struggle with your old self? With your old sin nature? Wouldn't it be nice to have every instinct, every word, every thought, every deed be perfectly holy and pleasing and acceptable and reflective of who God is? Wouldn't it be great for the battle just to be over? Why did God make it so that it's this slow takeover of the land of our souls? i got to be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that question. And I'm not sure this side of heaven I will ever know the answer to that question. But what I do know is that when we get to heaven and God gives us eyes to see and we know fully as we are fully known, it will seem very right and good and wise to us that God allowed us to live in a war for these years. It will seem good to us and we will worship Him for it. So for now, we just got to trust our Father. We have to trust Him. He's wise. He knows what He's doing. But this is clear as day to us. We have two treasures in our hearts, friends. We have two treasures. And He is telling us, He is commanding us, draw out of the treasure of Christ. Let no corrupting speech come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those in need. Before I move on, let me just say one more word about this. The word no corrupting talk or the phrase no corrupting talk does not mean no difficult talk. In other words, no corrupting talk does not mean that we never say anything hard to each other or sometimes anything harsh to each other. Just think about Jesus Christ for a minute. Think about all the harsh things He said from time to time. You remember the guy who wanted to come and follow Jesus? And he said, first, let me go to a funeral. I've got to go bury my father or mother. I couldn't remember who it was. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, friend, let the dead bury their dead, but you come and follow me. That was very harsh. That was very harsh. But it was the right word. It was not corrupting talk. It was just what that man needed to hear. And so it is with Paul, with John, with Jude, with so many other inspired writers, there's sometimes the Bible speaks in very harsh language. Very difficult to hear kind of language. That is not corrupt speech. That is not corrupt speech. 
Think about with me 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. And then here's another one. For reproof. You know what that word means? That word means rebuke. Rebuke. For correction and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. These verses teach us that for a person to be competent as a believer, from time to time they must be rebuked. Rebuked. And friends, that rebuke doesn't just come out of thin air, right? It's not like I read my Bible in the morning and then I'm walking down the sidewalk later that day and all of a sudden out of the clouds comes a rebuke from God. It doesn't happen that way. Most often, when I have been rebuked in my life, rightly rebuked, it's come by the wisdom of the Word of God through a faithful brother or sister. Often through the faithfulness of my wife who loves me enough to speak rebuke into my life. I need that. I need that. There are times when we must say difficult things to each other. And in fact, we would not be loving to each other if we did not say those difficult things. That is not corrupt speech. There are times when the difficult word is in fact the most upbuilding word that you could possibly speak. Would you agree with me? Greg, you're a construction guy. You must agree. Sometimes to build up, you have to tear down. You have to tear down and start over again. And sometimes the way that's delivered is with a difficult word. And so, no corrupting talk does not mean no difficult talk or sometimes even harsh talk. Now children, let me say a word to you before I go on. I'd really like you to listen to me here for a second. Sometimes, when your mom and dad speak harsh words to you, they're sinning against you. And they need to repent and they need to come and ask your forgiveness. There are times when I apologize to Rachel, when I tell her I didn't mean to say to you what I said to you, or at least I didn't mean to say it in that way. Because sometimes I'm wrong, I'm a sinner, and I need to repent and humble myself before her. But there are times, kids, are you listening to me? There are times when your parents speak harsh words to you, and they're not sinning against you at all. They're, they're saying hard things to you because they love you, and they want you to go in the way that you're supposed to go. They want you to live a life where you can glorify God and where you can be filled with joy. Now, when your parents speak hard things to you, here's what I think you ought to do. Don't just react right away. Don't point the finger and say, Dad, Pastor Charlie said you weren't supposed to speak to me like that. Don't, don't do that. What you should do is you should go and pray and think about what your parents said to you. And if you, if God helps you to see that what your parents were saying to you, that they were right, and that you needed to hear what they said to you, then here's what I think you should do. Go and thank your parents. Go to your dad and your mom and say, Dad and mom, thank you for saying to me what you said to me. I needed to hear what you said to me. Did you know there are some parents in this world who don't love their children enough to say difficult things to them when their kids really need to hear difficult things? So if your mom and dad love you enough to say difficult things to you, when you need to hear them, then you need to go and say thank you. And you need to thank God that you have parents that love you that much. Okay? You promise? Every kid that promises, raise your hand. That's good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I as a father, for the rest of us fathers, will promise you when we're harsh and we're wrong, we'll come and say we're sorry. We didn't mean to say it that way. We'll ask for your forgiveness. Okay? Deal? Good. Let's move on. Let's look at verse 29 and think about the alternative that Paul gives us to corrupting speech, to 
to moldy spinach and rotten tomatoes coming out of our mouths, what does Paul say we ought to do instead? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Those words, building up, literally refer to building a structure, to building a building just like this. And there's no doubt in my mind that the structure Paul has in mind is the temple of the Lord. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Let me just point you to two places in Ephesians that we've looked at several times, and you'll recognize these. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Paul writes, So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built, exact same word, built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now if you look at Ephesians 4, starting in verse 15, the words used again here. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Builds itself up in love. No doubt in my mind, this is what Paul has in his mind when he says what he says in verse 29. So the question I have is how exactly does the body build itself up in love? And of course, there are many ways that that happens. But friends, one of the primary ways that it happens is by the speech we use. Without gracious speech, I would dare to say the body cannot be built up. It is impossible for the church of Jesus Christ to be built up without gracious, upbuilding, God-given speech. It's impossible. We, as human beings, are people who need speech. And how else are we to build one another up except by drawing out of the treasure of Christ and then, with God's help, crafting speech that is specifically designed to build other people up. How else will it happen? How will you build me up except by speaking to me? If you don't speak into my life, there's no way that you can build me up. It's totally impossible. We are not dogs. We're not dogs. We can't just go around barking and growling at each other and groaning at each other. We have to have words. We must have words. The Lord helped me last Monday as I was meditating on all this just to see the amazing grace of language that He's given us. Have you ever stopped at all to think about what a gift that is that we can speak to each other? Dogs can't do it. My dog, if she could have spoke this morning, would have said, I'm freezing. Get me into the house. But she can't. She doesn't have any words. But we have words. We have words. And we need to use them to build one another up. I'll bet you have seen at some point in your life the study of a person who was isolated from human community. I remember when I was in college seeing a whole expose about this person who was totally cut off from human community. Totally cut off from speaking and being spoken to. And over a number of years, this person became a total vegetable. He became a vegetable. He could not function anymore. I'm telling you, we must have speech or we cannot function as human beings. Such has God designed us. And it's in that context that He says, only use gracious speech that builds up as fits the occasion and will meet needs as they're meant to meet needs. Now, that little phrase in verse 29, as fits the occasion, as fits the occasion, 
that literally reads in the Greek, of the need. Of the need. So you could translate the verse something like this, the latter half of it. But only such as is good for building up according to the need, or of the need. Now, whose need does Paul have in mind here? And I think it's quickly obvious that he has in mind the need of the person to whom we're speaking. To whom we're speaking. So here's what that implies. People who use gracious speech are people who take the time to think about others, to pray for others, to learn to read other people, to learn to discern their needs. And then they are people who, with the help of God, specifically craft language to meet the needs that they see in other people. They are people who become master craftsmen at using language to build others up rather than to tear them down. Now that implies something. That implies a miracle in the heart of a believer. Because I'll tell you something, that kind of dynamic that I just described, the ability to get out of yourself and truly reflect on the needs of someone else, and then craft language to help them, it's impossible in our flesh. It's impossible. In our flesh, in our sinful nature, we are so caught up in ourselves, we can't even see beyond ourselves, much less craft language to help other people. So it takes a miracle of grace, Jesus Christ coming into the heart of a believer and changing his orientation from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Now when I have the eyes to look into the face of God, I gain the power to use my language for the good of other people. So in other words, if we're to be people who use gracious speech, we're going to have to obey the words of Jesus Christ. Take up your cross and die to yourself every single day. You have to die to your needs. You have to die to your agenda. You have to die to your wants. You have to die to your old patterns of thinking and speaking and formulating words so that you can live to Him. So you can live to Him. The only way we can obey this verse is by a miracle of grace. A miracle of grace that Jesus Christ does in our lives. Oh, how I hope you can see this. I hope you don't go and try to obey verses 29 and 30 on your own. Without the power of Jesus Christ, there's no hope. There's literally no hope. But with Him, there's great hope. There's great hope. So with all that in mind, let me just ask you a few tough questions. I've been thinking about these questions for seven days now. And they have really helped me. And I want to encourage you to write these things down. If you don't have time to write them all down, that's fine. Brett puts my notes up on the website. So if you go to gcbcmn.org in a day or so, the notes will be up there and you'll have the questions. Please think about these things. If the Lord's willing, we'll talk about this again next week, and it will help you a lot, I think, if you spend some time reflecting on these things. Don't excuse yourself too quickly. Live in the discomfort that the Lord might bring up in you right now. How are you doing with these things? How are you doing with the speech that comes out of your mouth? What does the language that comes out of your mouth day by day say about the condition of your heart? Every word you speak is revealing the condition of your heart. So what's it saying? Are you, are you listening to what it's saying? Corrupt fruit comes out of a corrupt heart. So what's it saying about your heart? What is your speech saying about Jesus Christ who lives inside your heart? Speech was designed to reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. How are you doing? Are the words that are coming out of your mouth telling the truth about Jesus and about who you are in Him, or are they telling a lie about Him and about who you are in Him? How are you doing, especially with those people who are closest to you? 
And for me, you know, this gets to me most when I think about how am I doing with my spouse to the person who's absolutely the closest to me. How are you doing at using speech to build people up rather than to tear them down? How are you doing at crafting words for the good of others rather than for your own self or your own agenda? As I said, please spend some time thinking about these things. Sit in the discomfort of it. The Lord will help you. The Lord will help you. Let me point out just one more thing about these verses and we'll be done for this morning. I want you to notice with me the amazingly high standard that God sets for us in verse 29. It is, I don't know how else to say it, but to say it's it's a standard of perfection and it feels to me like an impossible standard. It does. Look at the words. Let no dot 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 but only. Let no but only. Do you know what that means? That means do not let one single word depart from your mouth that is corrupt. And it means let every single word that does depart from your mouth be good for building others up, be filled with grace, be designed to fit the occasion, to fit the need. Let no but only. Friends, God is commanding perfection from us. I felt this last Monday. I usually do my research on Sundays, but this week it was Monday. And I felt last Monday after I had done all my research and praying, I felt like I was a hiker standing at the base of Mount Everest and hearing the voice of the Lord say, Climb it. Climb it. And I say back to the Lord, What do you mean, climb it, Lord? And He says, I mean climb it. I mean climb it. And I just sat at the base of that mountain going, Impossible. Just impossible. And just feeling that discomfort. And then I read verse 30. I think about verse 30. And it feels like it piles the weight on a little bit because here's what it says. I bet you you've heard this verse in a hundred contexts. But I wonder if you've ever noticed the context in which it actually is. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. That word grieve means to make sad. It means to make sorrowful. It means to grieve the heart of a person. When we who are in Christ draw out of the old treasure in our hearts and use corrupting speech, you know what it does to the heart of God? It grieves Him. It makes the Holy Spirit very sad. Very sad. I hope with all my heart you'll take some time and think about that today or this week. Think about how your sin and especially your sin in speech grieves the heart of God. It grieves His heart. I think He wants us to feel it, not just read it. I really do. So I was thinking about this earlier this week. I was thinking about some times when I sinned against my parents when I was 11, 12, and 13. And some of you know I was a really rebellious kid in those days. And I remember them sitting me down many times around our dining room table. I would sit here. Dad would always sit there. Mom would always sit there. And they would try to speak into my life. And they were trying to get to my heart. And I was remembering this week the look on their faces of just grief and sadness. That to be honest with you, in those days I didn't understand. But as I grew and had my own child and just grew up in Christ, I began to understand the look on that face. They were not so much angry with me that I had broken their rules. They were deeply grieved to the heart because I had sinned against them as people. 
I was breaking the relationship and it was killing them. And the look I saw on their face was a deep, deep grief. And i got to think that Paul just wants us to see something of this with our Father. When we sin against our Father, especially with our speech, it grieves Him to the heart. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Have you ever stopped to ponder God in grief? In grief. Well, that's what our sin does to Him. It goes against everything He's trying to do in us when we speak in an inappropriate way. And it grieves Him very deeply. So then I come to this question. What do we do when we blow it then? If we know that the standard is infinitely high and it grieves God whenever we fall short of it, whenever we fall short of it, what do we do when we blow it? Especially if you're a person like me. I feel like I blow a thousand times a day with this mouth right here. And I think the times that grieve me the most is when I'm in our prayer room and I'm drawing near to Christ and I feel so much in communion with Him. And I'm learning from the Word and I'm praying authentic prayers and I just feel peace with my Father. And then I come out of the prayer room and I go downstairs and blah! Out comes a rotten tomato and moldy spinach as I'm saying harsh and hard things to my wife and my child. How can it be? that I just drew near to Christ and the treasure is so disgusting in my heart. How can it be? It grieves me. It really, really grieves me. So what do we do? What do we do when we fall? Well, again, on Monday as I was thinking about all these things and I was just feeling the weight of all this stuff, I was right on, on Highway 36 in Lexington in, in Roseville, if you know where that's at, heading south on Lexington. And I just said to the Lord, the only thing that I know how to say to Him when I feel like that, I just said, Jesus Please help me. Please help me. I want to be the man you have called me to be. Please help me. And I promise you, when those words departed from my mouth, I felt a peace from God wash over my body. I swear to you, in in an instant, the weight lifted off of my shoulders, and I just felt a peace. It was as if the Lord was saying, Son, I will. I will help you, my Son, in Christ. And I share that with you, friends, to give you hope. Because even though the standard is high, infinitely high, and even though it grieves God when we fall short of it, the bottom line is, in Jesus Christ, He is on our side, and He will help us. He will help us. He will not lower the standard. God will never do that for you. Do not excuse yourselves. But He will help you. He will help you. And when you blow it, and you throw yourself on the mercy of the court in Christ, He will forgive you. Hallelujah! He will forgive you 10,000 times a day. He will forgive you. And keep saying, son, climb the mountain. Daughter, climb the mountain. Climb, climb, climb. Reach the standard. I want you to be like me. Watch your speech. I forgive you. Watch your speech. I forgive you. Transforms your heart. Transforms your mind. And finally, in that day, friends, when we see Jesus Christ face to face, We will be transformed from the inside out. John says that we will be like Him because we're going to see Him as He is, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And never, ever again for all eternity will corrupt words come out of our mouths. They'll be wiped away. This is our hope. This is our hope. In Christ, God is with us now. And in Christ, He will totally transform us then. This is our hope. So jump over that bar and trust your Father. And when you blow it, get on your face before the King of Kings and ask for His forgiveness. He'll give it to you in Christ.
Let no corrupting speech come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for upbuilding as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for being a God who will not lower the bar for us. I thank you for being a God who loves us so much that you want us to be like yourself. You haven't said, oh, they're corrupt, so I better have a lower vision for their lives. You haven't said that. But in Jesus Christ, day by day, by the mercy of your heart, you are transforming us more and more to be like Jesus Christ. And how we thank you that you will not lower that bar. How we thank you that in Christ, in a week from now, in in a month from now, and in a year, and five years, and ten and twenty years from now, our mouths and the speech that comes out of them will be more and more like Christ and more pleasing to you than they are now. How we thank you. How we thank You for the mercy in Your heart that will forgive our sins every time we confess our sins. And so I pray, Father, that You would do a couple things for us. Please forgive us. Lord, this room is filled, filled with guilt for the sin we've sinned with our mouths. Please cover it in Jesus Christ. Lord, right this moment, all of it, I pray in Jesus' name that it would be covered and the burden would be lifted in Jesus Christ's name. Please forgive us. And then secondly, Lord, I pray, please help us with these things. Help us to use our mouths as instruments for the glory of Your name and the good of other people. Please help us, Lord. We want to be like You. And please, Lord, over the next seven days, prepare our hearts as we return again to think about these things in verses 31 and 32. And I pray a a futuristic prayer that that even then you would use your word to shape our mouths to shape our hearts to shape the way that we act as a people lord we are uh, virtually a brand new church and i pray that early in our infancy here you would teach us how to use our mouths for the right things and not for the wrong things for the glory of your name and the good of the nations we pray all these things in jesus name amen